web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first-time listener, for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. Maybe there's a particular challenge in your life or ministry, and you want biblical counsel on or a passage of Scripture you're trying to understand or apply. If we can be of help, we will do our best. Again, locally, the 843 South Carolina Exchange is 525-1859. You can email us here directly into the studio and the email address is wagp.net. This is always posted after, and by the way, I hope you'll follow us on Twitter. My son uh, is telling me, Dad, you, you've got to get on Twitter and YouTube, and so if you don't follow me on Twitter, just go to X, I guess they call it, and uh, I just have only been posting. I've been on there for 12 years, never posted anything until about a month ago, and so we went from about 100 followers to 450 followers, but I'd love to be at 10,000 followers. For what reason? To get God's Word out there so that a lost world might hear more. So go to Carl Brogy on X or search the Scriptures on X, and you'll get a lot of personal uh, things, too, about what's going on in my life. And so if that's something you'd like to do, do it now. Uh, we're at 449 followers. I'd love to have some more by the end of this hour. Carl Brogy at Twitter, or go to our YouTube channel, search the Scriptures, where the Bible line is always fully posted. Let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. All right. Good morning, Pastor Carl. Our first question comes from Jack out of Bluffton, South Carolina. He writes, I am a men's Sunday school teacher, and I would like to give the 22 men in my class your spiritual gifts exam. Can I get the key to the exam? Thank you. Good question. So many of you don't know that we have something called the Institute of Biblical Studies, and we offer courses that we really teach at a master's level taught them over the last uh, 25 years, and one of the courses is on spiritual gifts, and of course I have a real interest in that, and that I did my doctoral dissertation on the subject and created a test, 128 questions, that is actually self-scored if you do it on the computer. So this is what I would say to Jack, get the members of your class to either download the Search the Scriptures app for their phone or go online and type in searchthescriptures.org and get them to take the test. The computer will score it for them based on how they responded to the 128 questions and then have them bring uh, their answer sheet to your class. If someone is not computer savvy, I'm sure there's someone in the class that would be glad to serve them and help them. In fact, what's even better is not only to get them to take the test, but then maybe ask a spouse or a close friend that know them well spiritually and to take the test for them as if they were you and see how you score. Uh, and again, uh, Jack might want to listen to the course. Maybe, I'm assuming maybe he's taking it. Maybe he's just aware that we have a spiritual gifts exam. But then I talk about how do you evaluate the tests? What if someone scores super low 
on everything. What's their gift? Well, probably it just means they either are a new Christian or B, they're like the 90 to 95% that Dr. Billy Graham said have been saved sometimes for decades and they've never grown. And so what do you do in that kind of a setting, that kind of a situation? So I do kind of an analysis uh, of, and sometimes people will score high in a couple of areas, doesn't mean they have the same, uh, those two gifts, but there are characteristics, some common characteristics. So how do you distinguish? So I think that would be helpful. Jack will save you from having a wasted hour in Sunday school because it takes an, uh, an hour basically to take the exam. You can do it faster, but generally that's what it takes people. So get them to do it before they come to the class. Maybe give them three weeks' notice. Even send them an email the night before if they haven't taken it and to print out the scores that they receive. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that is 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning. Our next question comes from Lewis out of Lexington, Kentucky. He writes, Are you aware of any churches in the Lexington area that you would recommend? My wife and I are currently attending a church here in Lexington, but they have started using curriculum such as Timothy Keller and others that we do not agree with. Any advice would be helpful. Well, you're discerning. You know, Tim Keller was extremely popular. Uh, He just died a few months back and went home to be with the Lord, but he had some really errant doctrine. And one of uh, the gross misinterpretations of Scripture is he was willing to embrace theistic evolution. In fact, towards the end, he said that uh, Genesis 1 and 2, unless it's poetry, is filled with errors, contradictions, and mistakes. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, in my Genesis series, I walk through the so-called alleged errors that these so-called scholars make. So Keller knows better now, but to undermine Genesis 1 through 11 and its historicity is bad. It's super bad. It's not a small error. It's a huge error and a departure from historical Christianity. So, yeah, you're wise. I wouldn't go to a church like that because obviously either the pastors don't care or maybe they don't want to take a stand so as to be offensive, and that would mean they're weak or they're uninformed, which would mean they're not qualified, or they're just ignorant that Tim Keller had some heretical views, including towards the end of his life, his uh, approval of the Revoice movement, which was basically embracing uh, a certain level of homosexuality in the church, namely that you can be same-sex attracted, and you don't need to repent of those feelings, but you can embrace those feelings. That's gross, gross error. So, um, Lexington, there's a lot of Baptist churches there. About 15 minutes out, there's a church my son-in-law went to, and I actually attended there once. Uh, The pastor is Dr. Herschel York. Um, I know he's been there for like 30 years. He's also a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's getting ready to retire, and I think his associate is going to take over, but it's a good, solid church. It's called Buck Run, Buck Run Baptist Church. So you might start there and If you went there in 15 minutes was too far to drive, look, we have people who drive an hour to come to Community Bible Church every Sunday. Uh, They just said, look, we want to learn God's Word. We're committed to expository preaching. It's hard to find, um, you know, and so uh, 
you know, you could go there and say, hey, uh, can you recommend maybe even another church? And they would be glad to do that. So anyway, that's where I would start. Good question. I appreciate your discerning spirit. Let's go to the next question. Again, 525-1859 is the 843 South Carolina Exchange, or you can contact us directly here in the studio at wagp.net. We do give preference to live callers, and we here are in this December day are wanting to take your questions if you want to call them live. Some prefer to simply dictate their question. Anyway, I think we have someone from North Dakota. Yes, Pastor Carl. Our next question comes from Amber out of Kildare, North Dakota. Uh, she writes, I would like to understand more about the seven feasts. Should we as Christians observe these feasts, if that is true, that the Sabbath and the feast will be observed during the millennial reign of Christ? Well, I just opened my Bible to Leviticus chapter uh, 23, because that would be what we would call the central passage that deals with the seven feasts of Israel. And maybe there are listeners who don't even know what those are, so let me just briefly say there's Passover, there's unleavened bread, there's first fruits, there's feast of weeks, what we call from the Greek terminology Pentecost, there's uh, trumpets, sometimes you'll hear it expressed Rosh Hashanah. Uh, there's the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. And then there's Tabernacles or Sukkot. The first four feasts, the spring feasts, were fulfilled in one sense in Israel's, uh, in the Messiah's first coming. Jesus, by not by accident, but by providence and the sovereignty of God, died on Passover. He was in the grave and on leavened bread. He was raised from the dead on Sunday, first fruits. Fifty days later, at the end of the Feast of Weeks, the Spirit of God came. So those four feasts all pictured the first coming of the Messiah and the work that he would accomplish. There's three more feasts, Trumpets, Day of Atonements, and Day of Atonement, and Tabernacles, that will be fulfilled in reference to the second coming of Christ uh, all the way uh, during the time of the Great Tribulation when Israel is brought to faith. Uh, culminating with um, they're looking on him whom they have pierced with great mourning because they were converted before they looked. And uh, then the Lord will come and reign for a thousand years, which, of course, is what Sukkot or Tabernacles pictured. We do know from the book of Ezekiel for certain that trumpets will be observed, Passover will be observed, Unleavened bread will be observed, and tabernacles will be observed. Why would they be observed? Well, because remember, there's an evangelistic tone to the millennial reign of Christ. When it begins, there's only believers who enter into the kingdom. Uh, Jesus said you must be born two times in order to enter God's kingdom. So unless someone's born again, they'll not enter the kingdom, but there'll be two kinds of kingdom saints. There'll be church saints who are already in their resurrected bodies, There'll be Old Testament saints who are raised at the second coming of Christ, unlike we who are raised at the catching up, the rapture. There will be tribulation saints who were martyred during the time of the great tribulation, and they'll be raised with Old Testament saints. And then there'll be tribulation saints, survivors, we might call them, Jew and Gentile alike, who make it through the Great Tribulation without being beheaded or executed um, by the various attacks on believers during that period of time. They will enter into the millennial reign in their natural bodies. Uh, They will be unlike us in that they will live, number one, for a long time, and that's different from our state today. Today, men live 
you know, 70 years, if due to strength, 80. You don't do too many funerals of people in their 90s. It's very rare, though they can happen. Uh, nonetheless, during the millennial reign, a man's life will be like a tree, uh, a long, long time. In fact, he's considered cursed if he only lives to be 100. But the Messiah will be reigning with a rod of iron because the tribulation saints, unlike us who will be like angels in the sense that we can't procreate in our resurrected bodies, we don't become angels, that's heretical, but we're like angels. But the tribulation saints will be able to have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren over the course of a thousand years. Not all of those people will respond. And this is one aspect of the Messiah ruling with a rod of iron. Not only does he rule as a shepherd, but things are in order. And people who don't submit to his lordship, well, that's why someone's considered cursed if they only live to be 100 years of age. And so during that time, they'll be teaching. And God will, in fact, actually reestablish the millennial temple, not to take away sin, it never took away sin, the animal sacrifices. Hebrews chapter 10 says the, the blood of bull and goats can never take away sin. They didn't take away sin in the Old Testament. They won't take away sin during the millennial reign of the Messiah. They were simply symbolic of what the Messiah was going to accomplish. And in a retrospect, we, they will look back at what he already has accomplished. And so that's one of the purposes of the millennial temple and it will be with a focus of winning the children of lost uh, uh, children of tribulation saints who are born. And they have to make a decision. Will all of them make a decision? Obviously not, because at the end of the tribulation period, Satan will be released. He's been bound for a thousand years. No one will be able to say, well, the devil made me do it, because he won't even be around for a thousand years. But at the end of the thousand years, he'll be loosed for a short period of time, and he'll tempt the nations to go against God's Messiah. You say, that would be about impossible with Jesus ruling and reigning on the earth. No, it won't. It will be no more impossible than when Jesus walked on the earth and people didn't respond to him. Men love their evil deeds, and it will be really, among other things, God will be communicating how fallen we are by nature and the amazing effects of his grace. So, uh, yes, we will be, to answer your question shortly, observing at least certain feasts during the time of the millennial reign, just as we'll be having certain sacrifices that will be offered in the millennial temple, never to expiate or propitiate God, because he's propitiated only through the death of Christ. Uh, with that said, um, it's not something that we observe today, but we can learn from them. They're of great prophetic significance. They show us, among other things, one aspect of fulfilled prophecy. Some prophecy is fulfilled literally, directly, and some through types and shadows, and, and certainly these were shadows. They were foreshadowings of what the Messiah would accomplish and what he is still yet going to accomplish in the future during the time of Jacob's trouble. So it would be helpful to learn about those feasts. If you, um, There's a lot of stuff out there on the seven feasts of Israel, some that are poorly written or some even inaccurate. But if you went to, say, Jews for Jesus um, website or One for Israel or Chosen People Ministries, those would be three great messianic um, 
representations of, of truth, of ministry that I would endorse. So that's Jews for Jesus, one for Israel, or uh, Chosen People's Ministries. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, Pastor Carl. We are live in the studio with Pastor Carl this morning, 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl, our next question comes from Jim out of Charlestown, Rhode Island. He writes, do you understand the Lord's Prayer is to be prayed verbatim or used as an outline or guide or both, depending on the circumstance? Thank you very much. Well, it's a good question. It's been oft debated. Uh, let me remind you from the Sermon on the Mount, which we find in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, the context of what Jesus is saying. He says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. And of course, they pray so that they might be seen by men. So there are people like that who really aren't praying from the heart to the living God. They're praying to be seen by men. And Jesus said they have their reward in full. And so he exhorts us that when you pray, go into your inner room and let only your father see you. He sees in secret. And by the way, there are three things in this chapter that God tells us we're rewarded for if we do in secret, praying, fasting, and giving. Now, that does not mean that there are not public expressions. In fact, you can find public expressions of praying. The whole church is gathered to pray in Acts 13. You can find public expressions of fasting, even in that chapter that I just referenced, where the church is praying and fasting together. And there are times when a church should pray and fast. And then there are even public expressions of giving. Uh, For instance, when Barnabas came and publicly, by his example and his generosity, encouraged other believers to give to the needs of the saints. But if that's the only expressions of our praying, our giving, and our fasting, then it's more than likely hypocritical. Occasionally, I've said on a Wednesday night, hey, look, if you haven't had some time alone with God in prayer, this is not a good time for you to come to the microphones tonight. Uh, We should first have our own personal prayer time. Then he goes on to say, when you're praying, don't use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. And here the word Gentile is used synonymously with a pagan, not just someone who is ethnically a Gentile, but a pagan. In fact, some modern paraphrase translations will say, don't pray like the pagans do. But that is the essence. And of course, the Gentiles were principally the pagans in that day. And they suppose, Jesus said, that they'll be heard for their many words. You're not to be like them. And then he says... Uh, So, um, when you pray, pray then in this way, our Father who art in heaven. So we're acknowledging, one, that we're praying to our Father. And really, you should pray to the Father. That should be the pattern of your prayer. It's not that you can't pray directly to the Lord Jesus or to the Holy Spirit. And I've given you answers to those questions in the past here in the Bible line But you call God Father. I would even discourage just saying, Lord, Lord, Lord. Hey, Lord, Lord. Call God Father. If he's your Father, that should be the principal term. Hallowed be your name. You're you're acknowledging God's greatness for who he is, that he is holy, and you're you're praying his plan. Your will be done uh, on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So we're praying for the coming kingdom. You know, there are some churches that will not pray the Lord's Prayer, because they deny a literal, actual reign of Christ on the earth in the future. And they say, well, this was already fulfilled when Jesus was here. I think they're grossly mistaken. We pray for our needs, our daily bread needs. 
We pray for forgiveness, that we forgive other people as God has forgiven and cleansed us. We pray for God's protection over the evil one, and all in the context of giving God glory. So I think first and foremost, uh, we need to understand the Lord's Prayer is not something just that we recite word for word, and some almost see it like a magical formula, that if they say these words that somehow they're going to influence the Lord. Um, But first and foremost, the Lord is teaching us how we should pray. And he is speaking to the fact that we pray from the heart and not meaningless repetition or to be seen by men. Is it wrong to pray this prayer directly? Certainly not, because when you go to a parallel account, it's parallel in the sense that this is not the Sermon on the Mount that's being given. Uh, This is an entirely different day, a different setting. But again, you'd expect Jesus to repeat himself on important doctrines that he wanted people to know and to understand. So unlike Matthew, who says, pray then in this way, in uh, Luke chapter 11, it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples to pray. And he said to them, when you pray, say. So there's nothing wrong with saying these words. There's nothing wrong with memorizing these words than there are any other portion of Scripture. In fact, it used to be when I did funerals, when I first went into the ministry, we would often say the Lord's Prayer at the funeral site. Uh, You can't do that today because most people don't know it. That's where we've drifted. Uh, This would be a common portion of Scripture that would be memorized. In fact, it used to be posted on many public school rooms across America, but no longer, of course. And so there's nothing wrong with saying it, but that's not the principal point. The principal point I think that Jesus is giving us is not something that we should just recite, but it is something that we should model. Some get all bent out of shape for me even to call this the Lord's Prayer. Look, words have their definition in the various cultures and expressions. And they'll say, well, this is not the Lord's Prayer, that John 17 is the Lord's Prayer. Well, certainly that's a prayer Jesus prayed. Uh, We might better call it the high priestly prayer, but not the Lord's Prayer. Um, But nonetheless, you know, that's just getting pharisaical and bent out of shape. Traditionally, when people ask what what is the Lord's Prayer, they're referencing uh, the instruction Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount. Good question from North Dakota. Let's go to the next one. Or right. that, that came from uh, Rhode Island. Yeah. Rhode Island, All yes, right. sir. Uh, our next question, I believe we have a live caller, Pastor Carl. All right, let's we go. have uh, Woody from Ridgeland, South Carolina. Good morning, Woody. You are live with Pastor Carl. What is your question? Good morning, gentlemen. Thanks for taking my call. I uh, have a question about uh, Ruth, chapter 4, verse 6. I'll read the verse here. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. The question is, what does it mean that he's going to ruin his own inheritance? If you could explain that to me, I would really appreciate it. Great. Let me just give a commercial while I am here. Um For those who want to study the book of Ruth, I did a whole series on Ruth, 
and uh, you can find it if you go to searchthescripture.org and type in, there's a search bar where you can uh, find out uh, the different books of the Bible that I have preached, and uh, you can uh, type in Ruth, and, and, and then it will show you the breakdown. So if someone had a particular question on a particular verse, then they could certainly uh, go on and uh, study that sermon. So you've got Boaz, who brings out his real interest in the passage in Luke 4. Let me just uh, back up. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also require Ruth the Moabitess. Uh, And again, this was a, a function of Leveret Law, the preservation of the family name, and they had what's called Leveret Marriage. I won't take the time to explain it, but it's in the series. You must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up uh, the name of the deceased of his inheritance. And so as the Goel, as the kinsman redeemer, uh, this unnamed relative probably had no idea that there was a double duty that he had to perform. Had Naomi been, say, a younger woman, he would have been expected to have married her. But since essentially, as Naomi states in chapter 1, those childbearing days are gone. There would be no leveret child to whom the property would revert. However, Ruth is connected to the property. Why? Because she's married to Elimelech, if you remember that from the opening chapter, who, according to the laws of inheritance that you'll find in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, was in first line to inherit the property. So, again, it's a complicated question, and I, and I know I'm just trying to hit on the highlights here, but Ruth uh, is a direct heir under the law of leveret marriage. And so the closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. It is not simply I will not, but using stronger language, he says, I cannot. And the reason, lest I jeopardize my own inheritance. If it were just the field that he would buy, because it would give him an opportunity to have, obviously, more assets to make more money, okay, that, that's fine. If it was just Naomi, it would be a done deal, because Naomi is too old to get married and to have her as an heir. But when he hears about Ruth the Moabitess, that she's connected to this package, so to speak, to take Ruth would be to devalue his own net worth, really for a couple of reasons. First, because after he buys the field out of his own resources, when all is said and done in the end, it will not belong to his family, but to Ruth's son. And secondly, he would also be required to support Ruth as his wife. And he doesn't really care about Ruth. So why should he be interested? Redeeming Ruth with the land would involve an act of love and an act of sacrifice, and he's not in that position to do that. So from a pure investment point of view, it's not a good deal. And the way, of course, Boaz legitimately links the financial obligation in this chapter together with Ruth kills it for the relative. So anyway, it's a good question. I would encourage anyone listening, I've preached through every single verse in the book of Ruth, and it might be a helpful study to you. Go to searchthescriptures.org. If you don't have the phone app, you can download it. Uh, People tell me all the time, I'm out in the yard working, I'm out for a jog, and I'm listening to messages on the phone app, and thank you for it. It's been such a blessing, and we're grateful 
uh, that we have that to offer to people. Let's go to the next question. All right, Pastor Carl, 843-525-1859. Again, that is 843-525-1859 if you have a question for the Bible line this morning. Our next question comes from Joe out of Richmond Hill, Georgia. He writes, when God separated the people in Babylon and scattered them around the world, did skin color and facial distinctions change as their languages did instantly or over time? No, it's a, it's a good question. Um, and again, this is why it's important when you go to a church to find out if they believe in the historicity of chapters 1 through 11. In other words, you will have churches who say, we believe in the inspiration of the Bible, and they're using the same uh, orthodox terms of historical Christianity. They're just redefining them. And so you have to ask, do you believe in verbal plenary inspiration? And then you have some who are on a slippery slope, like Tim Keller, who was mentioned here in the first question, uh, who basically embraced theistic evolution that goes against everything in Scripture. Because in theistic evolution, you have death uh, before the creation of man. You have this uh, evolution process where things live, they die, they evolve, they die, they evolve, they die. And so you have to embrace the monkey story, uh, which again is not taught in Scripture. Not to mention Romans chapter 5 makes a very clear parallel that through one man, death entered into the world and with it sin. There was no sin, there was no death prior to the fall of Adam. Not to mention the parallel that Paul argues for in Romans 5, that through one man's act, there was a consequence to everyone who had come from Adam's loins, just like through one man's act, the second Christ, the Adam from above, the Lord Jesus, through his death and resurrection, there's a provision that is made for all men. So there's a clear parallel. So when you look at Genesis uh, 10 and 11, it answers the question of the races, and the evolutionist doesn't really have an answer. Uh, and those who do have an answer usually use it in a prejudicial way against the people of the world. Hitler was a classic example. He basically argued for a race of people that were superior over all other white races, and he also argued that people, for instance, who were of African origin were a lower, down-on-the-scale, evolved group of people. And so what does the Bible say? Well, in Acts 17, now I'm giving you New Testament commentary, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. So that's what God said. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. So when do the nations start? Remember, up until... Uh, Genesis 10 and 11, there's one nation of people. When you read in, in Genesis 10, by the way, this is typical of Moses all the way through the first five books, is he'll give a description of what has happened, and then he goes on and he tells us how it got there. So in chapter 10, he gives us what we typically call the table of nations, and someone would be scratching their head, but again, in typical Mosaic writing style, then he goes on in the next chapter and he explains how. He says in 11.1, now the whole earth used the same language in the same words. So there was only one nation at this point. Again, Adam and Eve came into the world. They had children, more children, more children. 
and eventually God came to Genesis 6 as this scriptural scripture records a historical event of the great flood. God was uh, grieved that he had made man because sin had grown uh, where God destroyed the world, excluding eight people. So in one sense, we all come from Ham, Shem, and Japheth. But still, there's just one nation of people. And so what did God do? Well, because of their arrogance, and there was different debates as to why they're building this ziggurat of sorts, some would say, so that if God ever decided to flood the world again, they had a place to hide up high. Uh, I don't think so, but uh, it's just arrogance. It's just worshiping according to the dictates of their depravity instead of worshiping according to what God had written in man's heart, uh, that there's one God who is to be worshiped as such. And so the scripture says, the people said, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used bricks for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, they're already in disobedience to what God had said. They were to fill the whole earth, but they're not doing that. They're congregating together. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, behold, they are one people. Again, there's just one nation, and they have the same language. And this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us. And again, it's a plural pronoun because the Trinitarian God is in view. Let us go down and therefore confuse their language so that they will not understand one another. So the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth, the whole earth, and they stopped uh, building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, which in Hebrew we say Babel. It just means confusion. I always thought that's kind of interesting that there's a language program that uh, ignorantly is uh, entitled Babel, when in reality it just means confusion, but they claim to be able to teach you languages in a short period of time. So what happened? Well, God isolates the people by language group, and so it's natural that you're going to hang with people you can understand. You're going to marry someone whose language you know. And if you do that long enough, as God scattered them, what was he doing? He was isolating the gene pools into these various groups of people. And as they married and had children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, then certain uh, physical characteristics began to develop. I was just recently in Dallas, Texas, and I saw a man, and I thought, this guy is Ukrainian. You know, and sometimes when I'll see someone from a foreign nation— whose physical characteristics are so distinct, I might even say privyet or, uh, you know, or I might say, you know, thank you very much in in Ukrainian. And sure enough, he was Ukrainian. Uh, Why? Because there were certain physical characteristics that developed within that particular language group. And they're slightly different from Russians and Georgians and and, uh, people who were born and raised their whole life in France and so forth. So yes, over time... As God isolated the gene pools, the physical characteristics began to develop. Now, sometimes we call that the races, but in a true biblical sense, there is one race, the human race. In the fullest sense, we're all descendants of Adam and Eve. We're all descendants of Ham, Shem, and Japheth. But if by race you mean nation, uh, the various nations of the world, 
then yes, you could say there are many races. So you have to define terms what you mean by that. But this is where the nations came from. This is why we have all the various people groups around the world. This is why when you go to a place like India, I was dialoguing last week with a missionary up in India, and you know, there's over 750 languages. There's actually more than that, but 750 main languages. Though many people know Hindi and English, there's 750 language groups. Why? Because for generations, this country, which now represents the largest population group on the face of the planet, larger than China, uh, this particular nation, they marry within their language group generation after generation. And so, for instance, there are certain people in some parts of India, and I know immediately what part of India they're from. Because when you greet them, they kind of shake their heads sideways, and they have this little shake, and somebody would call it a tick, but it's not. It's a cultural expression of greeting that they uh, demonstrate when you meet them. In fact, we have a brother from India that, that is visiting his daughter, and I saw him on Sunday, and he came up and hugged me. I don't think he knows much English, but he gave me that head shake. I know exactly what part of India he's from. This is all as a result of the Tower of Babel where certain characteristics developed over the course of time. Let's go to the next question. All right, Pastor Carl, 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl on today's Bible line, our next question comes from Craig out of Pooler, Georgia, and he writes, what do you know about Michael Heiser in his unseen realm? I've never heard of him until recently, but what I have heard about him seems off, specifically his explanation of Psalms 82 and how there are many lowercase gods, quote-unquote, that are spiritual beings because they are called Elohims throughout Scripture. Well, uh, again, the term Elohim uh, in Hebrew is a term that is actually the plurality of the word for God. And when you come to the opening verse in the Bible, Elohim, and it's actually a plurality. It's interesting because it says, in the beginning, created, singular, verb, gods, plural. But we recognize with the singular verb that there's a unity there. And so we translate it with the singular. But even in the opening verse of the Bible in kernel form, you have what we would call an expression of the doctrine of the Trinity. And even as you work through the early chapters of Genesis, I just quoted from Genesis 11, let us go down. Uh, in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image. He's not talking about angels. He's talking about this conversation within the triune God. God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. And if you have the uh, New American Standard, when there is an important uh, footnote, uh, they will put it out in the margin, and the word for rulers is Elohim. And again, it's plural. Literally, it says gods. And here again, um, the word can be used of sometimes angels or sometimes human rulers. But I think what's in view is there's this congregation in heaven, this assembly in heaven, uh, that uh, God doesn't consult, He needs no consultation but he allows men to participate. It's just like during the millennial reign of the Messiah. Uh, the Bible says that we will reign with him. Why? Because he needs our help. Not at all. He privileges us to reign with him. God has a consultation of angels in heaven. 
He says, what would you do in this situation? And they come up with different answers and so forth. Not that God needs help, but he's instructing and he's giving, even in the angelic realm, opportunity. Judges were called Elohims um, in the first century, and Jesus uses that in the Gospel of John. Now, here's my caution with this particular feller. If you went to Michael Heiser and you uh, Googled his name, it would lead you to a church that he participates in. And again, I don't know the man personally, so I don't want to bear false witness against him. But nonetheless, he participates in a church that what we would call is prosperity theology and what they often affirm is the little God's doctrine. And so you have men like Kenneth Copeland who speaks of our becoming little gods. We don't become little gods. That's better Mormon doctrine than it is Christian doctrine. So by association, I would be very, very cautious over what he is saying. But is there an assembly in heaven where at times God rules and speaks? And certainly there is, and there's examples of that in Scripture But look, when there's a check in your spirit, you should run the opposite direction. And I think you're right in doing so. Let's go to the next question. All right, Pastor Carl. Our next question comes in as a live dictation from Alberto out of Savannah, Georgia. He writes, "Uh, Pastor Carl has said that he judges other preachers based on their writings, but how is he able to judge preachers with smaller churches that have not written anything at all? Would he have to take the word of their congregations? Well, um, I certainly wouldn't judge other preachers that I don't know anything about. And so the scripture does say, let everything be confirmed on by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Moses said that. Paul quotes it in his letter to Timothy. So sometimes people will say to me, well, my pastor teaches so-and-so. Well, does he? And if there are two or three people that agree and hear that, then I would say, okay, you know, I had a lady that just called me recently over a guest speaker that we had, and she said, well, he said this, and I said, well, actually, he didn't say that. You didn't hear him correctly. Let me tell you what he did say. And I articulated it for her, and I said, actually, the message is online. You should go back and listen to it. So sometimes people hear things, even through a lens, through a set of glasses that they have made preconceived judgments over a person. And again, ultimately, uh, we're not the judge of any man's ministry. In the end, God is the judge of a man's ministry. And so Paul, in here, he's not dealing with doctrine. He's dealing with motive. But in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, "'For I am conscious of nothing against myself,' Yet I am not by this acquitted, but the Lord who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring to light both the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. What is he talking about? He's talking about judging motive. And if you remember, there were divisions in the church, and they said, well, some preachers were better and needed to be followed rather than others. In the opening chapter, Um, when he says, I'm informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? 
or you are not baptized in the name of Paul. And so his point was, is that some said, well, you know, Paul, he's the man to follow. He, you know, he even studied under Gamaliel. Maybe someone else said, Apollos, you know, what a preacher. He preaches like nobody else. And Paul, he's not very impressive. Cephas, Peter, he's one of the 12. And then you had another group. I don't really recognize any of these guys. I just follow Jesus. And so you had these divisions in the church, and they were decisions that were made on motive. Now, if you've read Paul's letter, you know that at times he names people by name who are in gross theological error. And that's part of a pastor's responsibility. I just named Kenneth Copeland. Why? Because he's an utter heretic. He's a false prophet. He preaches another Jesus. I say that because I'm called to protect God's sheep. First, my own congregation that God's entrusted to me and other people that I want to encourage in their faith. So one, sometimes unless I've spoken to the preacher directly, the way I would couch my answer if I had two or three witnesses, I would say, well, if what you two or three are saying is accurate, then this is what I would say. And I would respond accordingly. If what you are saying is accurate, and there are many people, again, I gave you an example of just a recent pastor we had preaching at Community Bible Church, and they said something about him, and I'm thinking, did you listen to the same sermon I listened to? And I've had people say that about me. Look, I'm not saying anything new. Everything I've ever preached is on tape and has been recorded since 1990. And so I'll say, go back, listen to this message. This will be helpful to you. Maybe it will elucidate some critical uh, events for you. So that's how I would respond to you, Alberto. It's a good question. But I don't go around, you know, why, why am I going to go around picking on pastors, you know, of smaller congregations that I know that nothing about? I'm not. That's, that's not my job. That's not my responsibility. But if someone comes to me and they're saying, hey, you know, I just came to this church and this is what the pastor is preaching. Well, if that's accurate, if what you're saying is accurate and true about the pastor, then I would run in the opposite direction. And sometimes when someone says that to me, I can type in the pastor's name and the, doct- and the uh, church and get a doctrinal statement and say, well, actually what you're saying is true. That church does teach that baptism saves you. And yes, that's in error to the scripture and you're, you're in a bad church. They're, they're saying that what Jesus did is not sufficient. So anyway, I hope that helps. Let's go to the next question. All right, Pastor Carl. Our next question comes from Beth out of Charleston, South Carolina. And she writes, can you please show justification in the Bible for taking a life as a law enforcement officer or military personnel? Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to direct you to a whole sermon that I preached on this. If you go to searchthescriptures.org, and again, for those listening for the first time, there's a phone app. I preached a sermon called Guns, God, and Government. And it's from Romans 13. So I had a particular message where I highlighted that, and I also preached it in my Romans series. For instance, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it, this authority that God has established, 
is a minister of God. He's talking about governments, those in authority who have the opportunity to oppose evil, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, even Christian people, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. And there's different words in the Greek New Testament for sword. This is the word that's used to describe the power of the sword to execute. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. And so all the way back after Noah and his family uh, came off the ark in the book of Genesis, God again is affirming this truth, and you will see it illustrated under the Mosaic law. For instance, Moses in Exodus speaks to the fact that if someone is breaking into your house at night and you can't see them and what their intention is and you end up killing them to protect your, your, your wife, say, your family, you're not guilty. But if the sun is high in the sky and, the, the, and, and someone breaks into your house and you can see that their intention is not to hurt you, and you take their life, then that person's blood is on your head. And so God in Genesis 9, he, he makes this covenant of the rainbow, and God, among other things, says, whoever shall shed man's blood, shall his blood, blood be shed, right here in Genesis chapter 9. Who's going to do that? Government that God is establishing. So on the one hand, I don't have authority to take someone else's life unless it is in self-defense. But this is an important, important decision. I had an F-18 pilot come into my office right after the first Gulf War started, and uh, he was being deployed overseas to drop bombs, and he said, I don't know if I can go. I said, well, what's the problem? He says, I don't know if I can drop a bomb on someone. I said, well, look, what did you sign up in the Marine Corps for? I said, you didn't know? Well, we haven't been in a war since Vietnam, and I was hoping I'd never have to face this problem. I said, well, you entered into the Marine Corps under false pretenses. But I said, one of the functions of government is to curb evil. There are people right now who are all bent out of shape over Israel's right to defend themselves against groups like Hamas who came in and slaughtered some 1,300 people in one day. And the slaughtering methods that they used were beyond human imagination. They remind me of the, of the Ninevites, the Chaldeans, who in some of their ancient writings would brag about how they executed people, how they would cut open the wombs of pregnant women and kill the baby and kill the mother. And just that's what happened. They plucked out eyes. They cooked newborn babies in ovens. This is what Hamas was doing. And if that government called Israel did not protect its people, then it would not be functioning as a government. Listen, uh, Beth from Charleston, you don't want to live in Charleston, South Carolina, if there are no police there who have authority to execute. And there's a place in which to protect human life. It's not that God devalues human life. He values human life. And so when you have the Pope of Rome saying, we don't believe in capital punishment, well, I don't believe in capital punishment either unless there are two or three clear witnesses. But God, God, God uh, dictates capital punishment in Scripture, right in Genesis, again in Exodus. And why? Because it's a deterrent against evil. When they executed 
in an efficient, fair way, capital punishment in England until 1961, their murder rate was 3%. After they lifted capital punishment, since then it's gone up 7,000%. Why? When I first went to England, I was in high school. It was only a decade away after they had removed capital punishment. Even then, the police weren't carrying guns. They carried what they called bobby sticks. Why? Because there wasn't a threat a real threat against human life. That was still in the mentality of the people. Now they carry weapons just like uh, the American police do. Why? Because evil is to be deterred. So again, that's the short answer. What I would push you to would be the sermon where I give an hour-long answer on this one subject and I walk you through scripture after scripture, some that are taken out of context like turn the other cheek and other things like that. Well, if you've just tuned in, again, we're here at WAGP.net and at 88.7 FM through the generosity of the listeners. Uh, If you have a 50-watt light bulb in your home and it burns continually 24-7, 365 days a year, you know it costs money. Well, we have 100,000 watts of power that burn 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And so if you'd like to help us, uh, we often do a fall share this year. We're just doing it verbally, and we need $25,000 towards our goal. We're currently at $15,000. You can go to WAGP.net, and you can give on our secure website, or you can write a check and mail it to um, WAGP, P.O. Box 130, Beaufort, South Carolina, 29901. I would invite you, or you can call us here directly if you want to give a credit card, and you can call us at 843-525-0089, and uh, they'll take your information. This Sunday, I have a very special guest speaker. I'm looking forward to hearing him, Steve Pettit, Citadel graduate, great evangelist, former president of Bob Jones University. He'll be in the pulpit at 9.15 and 11 o'clock. invite you to join us during that time. And again, if you don't follow me on Twitter or X, you can type in Carl Brogy or search the scriptures. I have two X accounts, and you can uh, follow me, and you'll get prayer requests, all kinds of things that I'm sharing with people on a daily basis. Thanks for being with us today on The Bible Line. We will come back again uh, at the start of the new year, but we're glad that you could be with us on this day. God bless you as you walk with Jesus Christ.